Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Oh, it's really um, lovely to see the the faces on everyone who is ending their retreat um, <clears throat> as you started to connect with each other uh, and have that meta glow kind of radiating from your your countenance. I don't know if it was just happy that it's almost over or uh, <laughs> or that or it seemed like you were really enjoying the connection and um, just uh, the permission to come out and uh, and see each other. It's really beautiful. And those who are continuing, uh, you have another chunk of time to uh, to deepen your glow and come out with uh, what's sometimes called the uh, the Dharma facelift at the end of a <laughs> of a retreat. <clears throat> And uh, whether you're staying or continuing, uh, probably you have seen for yourself um, that it's possible to open your heart and to awaken and deepen the love that's right inside. As somebody asked at the beginning of the retreat, you know, why do we do this? Uh, it works. And I was just sent a <clears throat> an email yesterday from a friend was uh, sent this um, this article <clears throat> the power of mental rehearsal learning to strengthen brain circuits can feelings be changed through mental exercise the answer appears to be yes over the past decade dozens of studies have been published on a particular form of mental rehearsal known as compassion meditation involves spending extended periods of time focusing on the intent and desire to develop feelings of compassion and loving kindness for others. In fact, brain scans have revealed that brain circuits involved in empathy, positive emotion, and emotional regulation are dramatically changed in subjects who'd extensively practiced this meditation. A study from the University of Wisconsin research team published in Psychological Science showed that focusing daily on the intention to be loving and compassionate not only strengthened feelings of compassion and, re and related neural underpinnings, but also increased the concrete altruistic behavior of subjects. <clears throat> A study from Emory University recently also found that compassion meditation boosted empathic accuracy a person's ability to read the facial expression of others. <clears throat> However, studies on mental rehearsal and compassion meditation suggest that it's not just any kind of attention that produces these significant changes. Once again, regular, sustained work is essential. So you've been doing some regular, sustained work. And... Uh, You've been planting really powerful seeds and they undoubtedly will be sprouting for the next weeks, months, years. And just imagine if you keep on watering those seeds regularly, <clears throat> how it affects not just you, but uh, everybody around you. This is not a self-indulgent practice. Sometimes when, when people tell their friends, oh, I'm just spending the week sending loving kindness to myself and others. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, that's not very productive, is it? <clears throat> What's the contribution there to the world? But um, what we're doing is bringing a bit more love into the world. And it's contagious. It is as you awaken those heart feelings in yourself, it awakens that in others. Just like you know when you're around somebody 
who has that feeling of ease and relaxation and is um, just wishing you well. And that's the spirit they come in into your field in. It lets you relax and resonates and awakens that in you too or reminds that in you too. <clears throat> is a, let's see. This quote from Mayor Baba, uh, the great um, sage from the 20th century. Love has to spring spontaneously from within. It is in no way amenable to any form of inner or outer force. Love and coercion can never go together. But while love cannot be forced upon anyone, it can be awakened through love itself. Love is essentially self-communicative. Those who do not have it catch it from those who have it. True love is unconquerable and irresistible. It goes on gathering power and spreading itself until eventually it transforms everyone it touches. That's how it works. When he says, those who do not have it catch it, I in my mind, tweak that a little bit. It's not that they catch it and it's from outside, but it just gets um, awakened and reminded what's already in here. <clears throat> so this is not self-indulgent at all. This is a, a tremendous gift that you're all, we're all giving to the world. <clears throat> and I want to talk tonight about uh, bringing your meta practice into the world. <clears throat> First to know, just as that study says, that um, it's possible to change. That was one of the questions that came up in the uh, Q&A. Yeah, it's really possible to change and it's not just for a few subjects in uh, in a compassion uh, study, but if you have a clear intention to change, then change is possible. So I wanted to talk about intention first and uh, a couple of other supports and then looking at what we're doing as far as meta for self, others, and, uh, and beyond. <clears throat> What you're doing in every time you're planting those, that, those phrases, you're saying those phrases, is planting the seed. You're saying it, may I be happy. That's an intention. May I be happy. May I be safe. May I live with ease. That's what you're planting in a very fertile ground where your heart is is um, pure, a sincerity and a clarity. Uh, even if you're spaced out, there's this very fertile ground, particularly that we're creating here together, that you're planting those seeds in. And if your intention to change is greater than your intention to stay the same, you'll change. And I mentioned it in the earlier uh, talk I gave about um, saying, ad admitting or getting clear in yourself, yes, I do want to bring happiness to this being. And once that decision is made, uh, anything is possible. I wanted to share with you one story on intention that, um, that has particularly moved me. It's from a, a book that I, that I love, um, that I recommend to people in the uh, Awakening Joy course called How We Choose to Be Happy by these uh, two, two fellows who've become friends of mine, Rick Foster and Greg Hicks. And what they did was uh, spend three years researching happiness and um, studying certifiably happy people. <laughs> they 
found about 320 over the course of the, the three years. And uh, they, they go to some place, say in rural Alabama, to a diner in, in the local town and say, anybody really happy here? And uh, they'd say, uh, yeah, Shirley, she's really happy. And then they go and, yep, everybody agrees, Shirley's a pretty happy person. And then they interview Shirley and ask, well, can we speak to um, some people who might know you, say, at work or your relatives? And if it was clear, everybody said, yep, Shirley's pretty happy. They say, why are you so happy? And they distilled nine different common, uh, common principles that, uh, that all of these 320 people shared. So, and they put out this book, How We Choose to Be Happy. And the first principle is intention, that somebody needs to get clear and decide whether it's overtly or, um, or implicitly um, that they want to go for happiness or well-being. And one story is particularly moving. It's not like all these people were born with silver spoons in their mouth and, oh yes, everything is great and so they're happy. No, actually, it was quite contrary. Actually, uh, many of the stories were people deciding to change and to be go for this direction. And this is Adele's story. Lest you think, well... I've got a lot of stuff on my plate, and I don't know if I, you know, if this stuff is, uh, if, if it's in the cards for me. Here's Adele's story. In one horrible 24-month period, my life evaporated. I lost everything. My house burned down to the ground, leaving me with nothing. It was the Oakland fire in, I think, 91. No clothes, photos, furniture, no material reminder of my previous life. During that time, both my parents died unexpectedly. My husband left me for a younger woman. At the same time, my restaurant went bankrupt. My best friend moved to Seattle. Even the dog died. Sounds like a, like a grade B movie, you know. <laughs> this really happened. I had nothing I was so filled with grief, I thought maybe God was somehow preparing me to die. Everything was gone. Maybe this was some monumental lesson in letting go and that I should let my life go too. But as my initial shock began to clear, a feeling that I wanted to live outweighed all of my thoughts about death. I began to see there was hope among the ashes. There was one big opportunity here. I had a clean slate. As long as I had to start over and create a whole new life, I was going to create a happy one. I wanted to feel whole. I was sure that I wanted to embrace everything in life, the good and the bad. I wanted a feeling of contentment and to feel rested and gentle. I wanted to feel unafraid to feel I could handle anything that came my way, and I wanted to feel this way for the rest of my life. In spite of my grief, I could see this all added up to happiness for a lifetime. And Rick and Greg have, have told me about this person, and it took her a while. It wasn't like she just decided, and oh, everything is okay now. She had to go through her pain and her grief and her sadness and her shock, but she was clear she was heading in a direction of greater well-being and happiness. And they say, you go into a room and she just lights up a room. You can really feel it, it's not fake. And that sometimes you have to hit rock bottom to decide, okay, I'm really going for a change. So wherever you are in your life, don't think because this has happened to me or this is my circumstance, uh, I, can't, I can't do this, I can't change. It's not so. You start with that intention. As the Buddha says, intention is karma, I tell you. Intention through body, speech, and mind, we create karma. And as a Tibetan 
teaching that says everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. So to really let yourself go for deeper well-being and have a commitment, that will lead you through. So I hope when you, when you leave here, you continue to plant those seeds either through your metta practice uh, on a regular basis or stay connected with your intention to go for real happiness. Don't settle for the lower level. Go for the real thing, which means getting clear on where real happiness lies. And we talked about that uh, in the last talk. So intention, a tremendous support. Mindfulness, being present and really seeing what's here and not flinching when it's difficult and learning to open up to the hard stuff and just being present for your life. That's what makes you come alive. And I want to talk a, a bit more about gratitude. We did the gratitude practice yesterday. Uh, it's so powerful when you see your life in the context of all your blessings. Because as we've said before, it's, so, it's easy to focus on what's wrong and miss all the beauty and the goodness. And this is uh, a great mistake. And I hope yesterday when we did the gratitude practice, you got in touch with how much your life is blessed. You know, I, I just had you do three together and then invited you to do some more on your own. You can keep on going on and on when you start looking at just the fact that you're alive and go from there. You might think of everybody who supported you in coming here and the, the, the people who um, supported you here and, the, and your life being supported all the time. Uh, and I would say, as I think I said yesterday, that expressing your gratitude to the people in your life who uh, have enriched it is a way to deepen the impact. And you might, even as you, when you go home, um, if you connect with the different people in the categories that came up, let them know that you were moved and your heart was open just thinking about them. Even the difficult, you don't have to say that they were the, in your difficult category. Sometimes, you know, you don't have to go that far. That's too much information. But if it was somebody close to you who maybe you had some difficulty with and they were in that category and you could open up your heart, let them know, mm, I just felt real deep appreciation and my heart was open to you. Um, because when you express it, it deepens. So I want to tell you about one gratitude story that uh, was, uh, I was requested to share that is another story that shows you that, that change is really possible. And this was the, the story of, of my mom, uh, who um, uh, Carolyn had asked, will you tell the story of your mom? Uh, so here it is. It's the best of all of the, the joy stuff that I've done. Uh, it's it's the, the one that gives me uh, not only most delight, but uh, had the most meaning for me. Uh, because my mom was not somebody who um, gratitude and expressing all the good in her life uh, came naturally to her. She, By the way, she's a YouTube star. Uh, so if you want to see my mom, you can uh, go to Confessions of a Jewish Mother. Yeah, and the subtitle is How My Son Ruined My Life. I, it's up to, the last I saw, 275,000 views because uh, she's very, very funny. And this is really to show you, again, change is possible. When I was writing, writing the book, uh, Awakening Joy, and I, was, um, I came down to visit my mom who was living in L.A., uh, and she, um, I was writing the chapter on gratitude, and I had all this gratitude research with me, which I 
shared with her, you know, what do you think of that? And I was reading, wow, better immune system, better relationships, you take good care of yourself and everything. Went through it, she said, wow, that's really impressive. And I said, yeah, isn't it? Hey, mom, wouldn't it be cool to do a gratitude practice? And she said, James, I know my life is blessed, but I've been looking at the glass half empty for a long time, and I don't think I'm about to change. She was 89 at the time. And then I just kept on going. I said, it occurred to me, well, if you could change, would you change? She said, yeah, if I could, I would, but don't hold your breath, because I've been doing this a long time. And I said, let's play a game. It's all the way you see it. You could say, I use this as an example, you could say, I know my life is blessed, but this damn TV reception is driving me crazy. Or you could say, the TV reception is really lousy, and I know my life is blessed. Do you see the difference? She said, yeah, I do. That's interesting. So I said, let's play a game. Every time you say a complaint, I'll just remind you and and you say, and my life is very blessed. And she had the kind of personality that said, okay, let's go for it, because she was into games. We were playing Scrabble at the time, because she was a great Scrabble player, loved to beat me, and uh, said, okay, let's play this game. She said, okay, let's do it. We had the most amazing week. I was there for a week. My sister, who lived right near her, was, was out of town, and I said I'd go visit with my mom for, for a week while my sister was away. And uh, we had this amazing week, as the complaints just rolled off her tongue, one after another, and I caught each one, and, you know, like, oh, it's so cold here in Marina Del Rey, and, oh, and my life is very blessed. We laughed the whole week. She got it, just how her mind goes that way, and we, as we laughed, she kind of got more into it. And we kept up that habit. After I got back home, I called her a lot those next couple of weeks, more than I usually do. And a friend down there was in on the game and played it with her too. My sister, who can see things kind of in the same way that my mom does and (laughs) tends to see what's wrong, her first comment when she got back and I spoke to her, she said, what did you do to mom? She was not all that thrilled, but she kind of got used to it. Anyway, it stuck. And um, I put in the book, seven months after, uh, it was my uh, birthday, and in our family we would write poems to each other for our birthday. And this was part of a poem that she wrote on that birthday. She was losing her eyesight to macular degeneration at the time. And this is what she wrote. 90 is just fine with me. I no longer rant and rave about where the world is heading and my exclusive job to save. I wallow in contentment and know that I am blessed, awakening to the joy of living at its best. I'm happier than I've ever been and truly mean each word. The thoughts that cause the worries now all seem so absurd. Though my eyesight has been dimmed, I see clearer than before. The glass is not half empty. It's overflowing, to be sure. If my mom can change at 89, anyone can change. And it wasn't just a cute little uh, interlude. This was the last five years of her life. Every conversation was peppered with how blessed we are. My, Jane, my wife, thought, oh, she's kind of playing along with the game and just kind of, it's fun. And then there was a YouTube and she got uh, you know, a, lot of, a lot of focus on that. But then after a while, Jane saw, oh, this is real because it carried on all the way to the end. And the last year of her life, she was diagnosed with 
with cancer. Um, and it was, um, uh, fortunately, it, it wasn't painful. Uh, so she was very grateful for that. But the last six months, she was in bed, not able to go to the, to the bathroom even. Her eyesight was pretty much gone, and her hearing had, had, was very, very uh, uh, diminished. So there she was in what were not particularly good circumstances, and all she kept on getting in touch with and sharing was how blessed she was. And the, the, the weeks before the end, I, I was visiting her, this is about f- three or four weeks before she passed, she passed last June, and um, I came in one morning and, uh, and she was, looked very pensive, very, very deep in thought, and then she, um, she saw, I, she didn't hear me come in in the morning, and then she saw me there, she could make out that it was me. I said, hi mom, she said hi. I said, wow, what was going through your mind? You looked so deep. And she said, actually my mind was devoid of all thought except thank you God, thank you God. And then I said, wow mom, can I quote you on that? (laughs) And she said, will I get a commission? (laughs) Humor till the very end. And at the very end, uh, I said, do you want me to read something? Uh, uh, read any of any, do you have any words you want me to share at your memorial service? She was accepting and ready to go. And she said, sure, yes. And uh, she shared with me some words and then the gist of it was, I don't know how I, uh, my life turned out the way it did. It's been an incredible run. I've been so blessed. And then she said, blessed. It's such a small word and it means everything. And then the last line was, I wish you all happy, healthy, uh, healthy lives, good politics and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and happiness, yeah. So it, it went on to the very end. So. It's possible to change. When your heart is open and it's free from fear and you're not stressed or caught in wanting or aversion, love, compassion, joy, peace flow naturally out of it. And gratitude is a great way to hold all the challenges. But just to know that when we are cut off from our metta, from our love, or those other qualities, it's simply that we're contracted, stressed often, and we get disconnected from those natural qualities. So if we can have suffering as a signal that, oh, this heart is contracted somewhere. What, what do I need? What's, what's going on? How can I get a little bit more space? <clears throat> and giving that to yourself, uh, this is a key. But you're, you can't lose your, your metta. You can't lose your love. It just gets covered over and forgotten for a while. It's just dormant, but it's there, waiting to come out. The... The tricky thing is that in our life, this intense life that we have, it's so easy to get stressed and forget. And so I just wanna remind you and then read to you uh, something from my favorite writer, Mark Morford, who comes out every Wednesday with a column, um, M-O-R-F-O-R-D. This is his column, Hurry Up, get more done and die. 
Your terrifying word of the day is microtasking, and it comes by way of a relatively humble, ostensibly helpful article I read via one of those perky little do-it-yourself blogs that exist to tell you a million ways to tweak and hack your entire existence to gain maximum productivity, efficiency, and improved overall time management because, well, if that's not the true meaning of this manic American life, what is? The advice was horrifyingly simple. When you find yourself pausing in between normal projects and work tasks for anything more than, say, 30 seconds, why not take those tiny moments and, well, do more things? (laughs) I mean, you're just sort of sitting there, right? (laughs) What sort of things? Fast things, little things, otherwise inconsequential things you don't care about otherwise, like clearing your junk mail, refilling the stapler, changing your voicemail message, retweeting someone's Twitter blip, or giving a momentary damn about something you need not give a damn about otherwise. But hey, what else are you going to do? Breathe? (laughs) Feel? Merely exist? What are you, a hippie? (laughs) It's a fascinating and terrifying idea really that if you could just maximize your output a little bit more, if you could cram into all open white space another thing to do, wow, think of all you could get done by the end of the day. Think of how much you could get checked off your list. We are by and large utterly terrified of silence, stillness, spaciousness, the doing of nothing as to feel the totality of everything, Meditation, for most, is disquieting and and strange. Deep quiet feels weird and dangerous, a void aching to be filled. The internet has us convinced that the world is a roaring fire hose of urgent information, and if you can't swallow it all, well, something must be wrong with you. In any 48-hour period in 2010, says a stunning article I read in The Atlantic, more data was created than had been created by all of humanity in the previous 30,000 years, up to the year 2005. I read that that study. By the year, that's in a 48-hour period, by the year 2020, that same amount of data will be created in a single hour. Go ahead, swallow hard. It's no longer possible to sit quietly on the park bench without checking your Facebook feed, chatting with Siri, and waving to the closed caption TV cameras. It's no longer possible to be astonished at the wonder of your footfalls along the forest path and not feel the urge to check email, find the nearest Starbucks, hipstamatic the hell out of that beautiful fallen tree. You cannot just sit in your car along a quiet country road without the GPS beeping that you took a wrong turn as OnStar politely blows up your car. (laughs) How easily we forget. Time expands, time contracts. Work will swell or diminish to fill a given space. You can do 10 things in an hour or one thing in 10. You can go to Spirit Rock Meditation Center for two solid weeks and do absolutely nothing but wander the grounds in silence for 12 hours a day and time will look at you like you're utterly insane as your breath and body thank you for all eternity. You can, conversely, microtask until your heart implodes and time merely will laugh and snort and find someone else to destroy. You don't want to do that. (laughs) You want to give yourself enough space so that you can really feel your heart in there. So you can really allow all that goodness to shine through and even be present for it as it comes towards you. So how to apply what we've cultivated and been learning here So it starts with yourself, just as the meta-meditation starts with ourselves. Don't put yourself last. Go for true well-being. The Buddha said, see where true happiness lies and commit to facing in that direction, as I said. But you need to really start by taking care of yourself. When you say, may I be happy, you are 
seeing may I be truly happy and true happiness is supported with integrity, with being aligned in your values, with not doing things that cause suffering to yourself or to others. That's the foundation for true inner peace. That's what the Buddha said. And he said, keep on listening inside because we have these compasses inside our conscience. Sometimes it's called moral shame and moral dread in, in old Victorian translations. Hiri and Otapam. But we have inside this place that knows when we're going a little bit off. Keep listening inside because you know, if you can pay enough attention, you know if something is feeling aligned or not. And don't pretend you can't hear it. Um, don't deceive yourself. Sometimes I think the power of, of practice is learning the, the power of delayed gratification. Will this really bring me happiness? And feeling a, a sense of a, what my son Adam uh, calls abundant enoughness. Uh, that in this moment, there's enough. Life is giving you enough in this moment. That's what taking refuge in the Dharma is. Ah, this moment is giving me what I need to wake up. And this is the, the quality of contentment and knowing when enough is enough and not getting into that grasping greed mind which has no, no end to it. That's why learning to listen and be aligned and not do things out of greed or confusion that really don't lead to a, a sustainable happiness. <clears throat> and out of that contentment, there's that generosity of heart which you've been experiencing for this last eight days or so. Nothing in it for you other than wishing somebody well. Doesn't it feel good when you really connect with it? Oh, may you be happy. Ah, this is where the real happiness comes. Not from what you can get, but from what you can give. But it also means to not miss all the love coming your way. So here's the corollary to the sending out. You have to not have to. I find a key to metta is being able to let in the love besides sending it out. That's different than grasping after it. Oh, will they give it to me? Uh, I need more. But rather, it's coming our way. We so want it. Why not be here and receive it? Letting in the love, like somebody yesterday in the, in the gratitude uh, said, well, when somebody says thank you very much, it's, it's hard to take it in. To receive it is good karma for that other person as well as for yourself, as I said. Letting in the love. And here's a little practice that I would suggest that you play around with that I've found very helpful in, the last, in recent years. Anytime somebody smiles at you, says sincerely, hi, how are you? Or opens a door for you, or any goodwill coming your way, don't miss it. Really be there for it. It's not like you've got to say, hold on a second, will you say, uh, how are you again? But just be present and take it in. Oh, this person is sending me some goodwill. It's like the metta is coming towards you. Feel the connection with that other being. And here's the little extra credit assignment. See them not just for who they are, but as an agent of life letting you know that you're loved. Because that's what's happening. It's just life sending you some loving energy. Once you start tuning into that and seeing how much 
good positive energy comes towards you, if you've got your radar out for it, you will probably be blown away because so much is coming towards you. Don't miss out on on how much life loves you. And as you take it and let yourself receive it, instead of blocking it because, oh, I'm not worthy, or, oh, they don't really know me, or this is dangerous to to let it in, or to, to let somebody in, as soon as you learn to let down the barriers and see, oh, yes, this is okay. It's not a fluke. I'm worthy of this. It will fill you. It will fill you so much there's no way you can hold it all. So what else can you do other than just send it right back either to them or to others? And the way I see it is like we become meta-recycling machines. You're just letting in the love, sending it out. It doesn't belong to you, but it is who you are and just sending it out as a gift to everybody else. When you say to yourself, may I take care of myself happily, this is a great way to nourish yourself and to look for the good and see it from everyone around you. And if you're a little bit disconnected, then simply asking this very profound question to yourself, what do I need right now? What do I need for true well-being? What do I need, you can say, to open up my heart to myself? What do I need to thrive? You can fill in the blank, but what do I really need And if you listen, once again, your wisdom is right inside. If you hear somebody else say something that sounds wise, you know, maybe in the talks you've heard, you know, some, you know, beautiful teachings, don't get deceived in thinking, oh, they're so, they're so wise up there on the platform. You're missing the point. It's just touching a place in you that says, yeah, right on. That's, that's true. The wisdom is right inside. It's just reminding itself. So more and more, if you listen and then can ask that question, what do I really need? You can hear when it's coming from a place of wisdom, not a finger wagging that says, you better not blow it. Uh-oh, you're in, in all, all hell is going to break loose. That's not the voice of wisdom. That's the voice of fear. Listen to the voice of wisdom. And my, my, um, uh, my approach to fear, which is a very important thing to pay attention to, I don't let fear run the show as best I can. If I sense that I'm being driven by fear, I take it out of the driver's seat, I put a passenger a seat belt around it, put it in the seat, the passenger seat. I put a helmet around it mentally, just let it know that it's okay. I don't want to throw it out of the car. It's scared. <laughs> yes, I honor you. I, I really want to respect you, but you don't get the keys to the car. So uh, listen for the wisdom voice to tell you what's needed. Wives. Wow. Meta towards others. It's amazing how the heart can open just like that. Have you seen it? Just in a moment. Oh, how beautiful. And it's also striking how easily and quickly the heart can close. Even with those closest to us. Maybe you had that with your benefactor or your dear friend or they became a difficult category or whatever, how things can change, how people who, f- who are in love can uh, get divorced, even acrimonious, or we can have a falling out with our good friends. In a moment, the mind gets in the way and fear confuses and we forget that flow that really touched us about that person. So particularly with loved ones, you want to uh, remember 
to uh, see how that flow can be kept open. And here's just a little uh, pointer to that. As we've said a few times, the near enemy of metta is attachment, is wanting. It looks like metta, but it's very different. When we talk about the pain of love, you know, that song, Plaisir d'amour, the joy of love is but a moment long, the pain of love endures a whole life long. That's not metta, right? <laughs> That's attachment. When we are just wishing well, people want to be in our space. When we want something from them, you know how it feels when somebody wants something from you? You don't say, oh, tell me what I, what I can do, generally. Uh, unless you're feeling that love. But here's a, just a little exercise for you. I did this with uh, a couple of people. Just close your eyes for a moment and bring to mind somebody who's really important to you, who you do genuinely love and who's, who's close. And just wish them well for a few moments. You might, as you've been doing probably, may you really be happy. And, you might see them smiling as, you, as they, they feel your well-wishing. May you feel my love for you. And notice how it feels in your body and in your mind, in your heart. And now, get in touch with how it feels when you want something from them, when you don't want them to disappoint you, or they haven't met your expectations. I hope they don't blow it or they did it again. Notice how that feels in your body, in your mind, in your heart. I won't leave you here. Take a nice deep breath. And once again, just wish them well. Just erase that last and just once again, see them happy. May you really be happy. I really love seeing you smile. Thank you for being in my life. I wish you well. Once again, notice how it feels. Okay, you can open your eyes. You notice the difference? In just a moment. Of course, we want things and from people and we want them to keep their agreements and, and all of that. It's, it's not to just, you know, not, not get clear on responsibilities. But the more there's attachment there, the more it cuts off your love and they respond in kind. And the same with, um, with the other categories, that to just wishing well, that's what's so beautiful about metta. When you can practice it with your neighbors, the neutral people, that neutral person, for the mailman and, and store owners or your neighbors. Oh, great, some more practice for, for my metta. Or mudita practice, just seeing the happiness around you. Oh, what I call a free joy ride. Oh, good, there's a little bit happiness around. Mm. And with a difficult person or people, experiment. Take it like a practice challenge. Okay, I'm gonna be with my mother-in-law for the next week. Let's see, she's a difficult one. Let's see if I can keep my heart open. But know your limits. Know, titrate your, your metta practice a little bit at a time. But see that it really hurts to close our hearts, particularly to people who are, um, who are very difficult, not just close to us and a little hard, but people who are difficult in the world and in your sphere. There's a line from uh, Longfellow. He says, uh, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find enough sorrow and suffering to disarm all hostility. 
If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find enough sorrow and suffering to disarm all hostility. There's causes and conditions that shape each of us. And if we can have some imagined, compassionate understanding why they are the way they are, what's going on in that pained mind that would consciously hurt another, then we can begin a little bit to remove the blame and to shift it to that compassionate understanding, which can turn into uh, forgiveness. Hatred never ceases by hatred, the Buddha said. Hatred only ceases by love. This is an ancient and eternal law. So now I'll get to the last piece, all beings, or in a, in a bigger sense, uh, using your metta practice to make a difference in the world. <clears throat> we live in very interesting times. You know, there's a Chinese curse, may you be born in interesting times. <laughs> this is what we've been given, and it's an incredible opportunity. Never before have we been on the brink of destruction, man-made destruction. Never before has there been more consciousness in the world. Never before has there been a connection of, of communication and information like there is now. There's a, a book by Paul Hawken who has come here to Spirit Rock. He wrote this book, Blessed Unrest, uh, that um, he studied how many um, non-profits and, uh, and humanitarian groups there are going on trying to make this a better world. And he uh, estimated, after doing a fair amount of research, it's somewhere between one and two million groups wanting to do, make this a better world. A friend of mine says, we're in a race between fear and consciousness. And consciousness trumps fear every time. But the race is a dicey one. Who knows? Who knows what the timeline is going to be? So there's... It's scary, but there's also great possibilities. As uh, Andrew Harvey, who's been inspiring for me, says, we're in a dark night of the species. You know, like the dark night of the soul. You go on retreat and you go through the hardest stuff and come out the other end. That's the hero's journey. And humanity is going through a dark night of the species right now possibility of greater awakening than we've ever had before. So you don't know, but what you can do is cultivate as much of your good heart as possible and share it with others. This is not just for your own well-being. Now I want to, I want to read to you a little bit uh, by Bhikkhu Bodhi, the premier um, translator of the Pali Canon who has become a tremendous engaged activist in the last few years. He says, if Buddhism in the West, this is from an essay called A Challenge to Buddhists by Bhikkhu Bodhi. It's there online, you can check it out. If Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I'm apprehensive that it may evolve in a one-sided way and thus fulfill only half its potential. Attracting the affluent and the educated, it will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite, but it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that in the face of immense suffering, which daily hounds countless human lives, can present only a resigned quietism. The special challenge facing Buddhism in our age is to stand up as an advocate for justice in the world, 
a voice of conscience for those victims of social, economic, and political injustice who cannot stand up and speak for themselves. This, in my view, is a deeply moral challenge marking a watershed in the modern expression of Buddhism. I believe it also points in a direction that Buddhism should take if it is to share in the Buddha's ongoing mission to humanity. This is not just for ourselves. How to make a difference. Well, first, not to throw in the towel and think, oh, it's hopeless. Because change happens very quickly if, when the tipping point is reached. And I came across this study that said what's really needed for a paradigm shift in conventional thinking is just 7% of the population to shift their thinking. Because most people are just sitting on the fence and saying, tell me what I'm supposed to think. But look at what's happened with same-sex marriage, with uh, women, with uh, 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 civil rights. And sure, there's still things that, a lot of things that need to be done in all of those areas, but it's no longer cool to uh, bash somebody for their sexual orientation. It's no longer cool to, uh, to um, um, put somebody down for their, uh, their background. Uh, the conventional wisdom have cha- has changed. And the same with other uh, issues. For me, climate change has been a, a really big one. And it's been beautiful to see in the last recent times how things have changed. By the way, while you were on, uh, while you were sitting, one piece of news that I'll share with you, it's not a, it, it, it didn't get huge headlines, but it was really big for those who, who uh, knew. The World Council of Churches, which is a um, 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 representative body of 590 million people, um, voted to divest uh, all of their funds uh, from fossil fuels. That's pretty big. A couple of months ago, the Pope uh, said climate deniers are committing sin, and I I don't have a I don't have time to to share the whole thing. But it was beautiful what he what he wrote. Uh, mm, safeguard creation, because if we destroy creation. It will destroy us. Never forget this. Creation is not a property which we can rule over at will. It's, the pro- it's not the property of only a few. It's a gift, a wonderful gift that God has given us so that we care for it and we use it for the benefit of all, always with respect and gratitude. <clears throat> In destroying creation, we say, we're saying to God, I don't like it, this is not good, because it's God's creation. So, so what do you like? I like myself. This is a sin. Do you see? <laughs> and in the last few, um, few months, in this past year, the Dharma teachers have gotten together and, uh, and been focused on um, uh, this. And there's a, a beautiful teacher's collaborative statement on climate change that's on a a website, One Earth Sangha. It came from our teacher meeting last, last year. And uh, lots of beautiful things, oneearthsangha.org. And there's going to be a curriculum this for, fall that, uh, that lots of Dharma teachers are going to be sharing online that people can, uh, can participate in. Um, and uh, you get your inspiration from wherever you can. For me, Julia Butterfly Hill, who sat up in a tree for a couple of years, is, was always a huge inspiration. And she would give these talks, very dynamic talks, and people would come up to her afterwards and say, oh, Julia, you've inspired me so. And she'd say, oh, that's so wonderful. Inspired you to do what? Put your compassion into action. It's not just about wishing well, but to, as Andrew Harvey says, follow your heartbreak. That's where the juice is. That's where you get the compassion, the sublime state of compassion by feeling your caring and expressing it well. 
So, however you apply your Dharma practice to yourself, or your metta practice to yourself, towards those near you, to the world, everyone benefits when you let that love be expressed. And you don't have to do it alone. That's the beautiful thing. That's refuge in the Sangha. We're doing this together. Our compassion has to be balanced with equanimity. Otherwise, we get too blown away. So you want to just know how much you can care and hold it in a way that doesn't tear you apart but that gives you all the space to know I'm doing my part and let it be a, um, a gift to everybody else because it's magnetizing that way. So get some space, just take, take your life, enjoy all the beauty and express your caring. And you don't have to do it alone. So I'll just end with this poem by Dana Falls called Sangha which is what we've been bathing in this last eight days. Teach me what I cannot learn alone. Let us share what we know and what we cannot fathom. Speak to me of mysteries and let us never lie to one another. May our fierce and tender longing fuel the fires in our souls. When we stand side by side, let us dare to focus our desire on the truth. May we be reminders, each for the other, that the path of transformation passes through the flames. To take one step is courageous, to stay on the path day after day together, choosing the unknown and facing yet another fear that is nothing short of grace. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.